Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to DPP, Daily Power Parsha for October 14th, 2021. Today is a Thursday, which means we're going to be studying the fifth reading of the Torah portion, which is Lech Lecha, a very seminal Torah portion when thinking about the story and the origins of the Jewish people, because we read about Abraham and his journeys and monotheism and all that good stuff. So I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's jump in and explore today's reading. Now, we did not have class yesterday, so we missed the day of DPP. I had another prior engagement, and I wasn't able to, uh, to do it. But the day before that, which would have been Tuesday, I, think, I believe we doubled up. So um, we read about, a few days ago, the epic war. I'm going to call it the world war between the four kings and the five kings. We read about how there were four nations that went to battle, that went to war against the five nations. And even though it sounds like the five have more firepower on their side, the four had been victorious over them. The five then rebelled and pushed back. And then the four crushed them once again. And in the process of crushing them, they took captives, including Abraham's nephew, Lot, Abraham was told about the abduction and the, uh, the captivity of Lot, his nephew. He went out and fought and extricated, saved his nephew. And that's kind of the way that that reading um, ended with one addition, and that is that the king of Shalem, Malkitzedek, he comes over to Abraham and Abraham, uh, and he blesses Abraham, says, Abraham, you're the man, I'm paraphrasing, and Abraham gives him a tithe of all of the spoils that he got in that war. Machitzedek was Shem, the son of Noah, who was a priest, who was a monotheist, who was a leader, a respected individual, and that is the, the meeting of two of the great, the great uh, tzaddikim, the great righteous people of all time. You can imagine that epic meeting. But it all comes on the heels of, a, of, of Abraham entering into a war in order to save, or at least into, yeah, I mean, into a war to save his nephew who had been abducted. Okay, and that was Lot. Lot had moved to, uh, to Sodom, etc. Let's jump now into the fifth reading, which is for today. Now, my goal today is to do two readings, number five and number six, because as you recall, on Friday, tomorrow, we're going to be doing seven and half Torah. So today is five and six. So let's buckle up and let's join the ride. Tell me if you guys, is my internet still stable? Can you guys... Am I still stable? Yes. Cutting in and out or good? Smooth? All right. I got a little message there, so I'm just checking it. All right, let's jump in. Genesis chapter 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Avram. Let's clarify. Sodom was one of the five nations that had been beaten by the four nations. Sodom is where Lot lived. And that's when Abraham, Avram, got into the fray and he pushed back the four kings to rescue his nephew. But in the process, he, spared, he, he saved Sodom as well. So the king of Sodom said to Avram, give me the souls and the possessions take for yourself. In other words, all the people that you've taken captive in this battle, give me the people and you can take all the possessions for yourself. You can keep the spoils, but I want the people. 
In the Hebrew, it's ten lihanefesh. Give me the soul. By the way, it says souls in English, plural, souls. But in the Hebrew, it's hanefesh. It doesn't say hanefashot, plural, souls. It says singular soul. The Rebbe once spoke at a Fabrengen and said, this is God's call to all of us. I know it's Sodom to Avram, but if you want to extract it from its particular uh, context and, 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 and pull it out, Tenli Hanefesh, God says, give me your soul. Give me your spirituality. Give me, right, the deepest part of who you are. Don't just lip service and, you know, second rate effort. Give me your soul. Give me your best. Give me your enthusiasm. Anyway, that's, uh, yeah, Donna. I'm still a little thinking of the end of, yes, of our last portion. So the king, I mean, I thought kings came after the entrance to Jerusalem, you know, after Moses let the people into Israel. It wasn't the Jewish land. Shame, it wasn't a Jewish land with a Jewish king. It was Shalem, it was Jerusalem had a king or had its own governor, and that was shame. The son of Noah. So yeah, it wasn't a Jewish king. The Jewish monarchy, you're right, began after the Jews settled the land of Israel, and many years later they they got the first Jewish king, and they had the, you know dynasty going on over there. This is not Jewish. It's just shame. He was a spiritual guy, well respected, and a leader. He happened to be a monotheist. He wasn't. Uh, it wasn't though a Jewish situation. It wouldn't be considered under Jewish control. It was under whoever lived there, you know, um, other nations, with this guy who was the king. This, this uh, not this guy, but this special individual who was their king. All right, so the king of Sodom, which is one of the other cities, right, one of the other nations that Avram had helped with this war, says, give me the souls and take the possession for yourself. So what does Avram say back? Verse 22, and Avram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand. To the Lord, the Most High God, who possesses heaven and earth. I love it. Avram is the consummate educator. And any opportunity, he's going to tell you about monotheism. right? So even as he promises, even, even as he gives his word to the king of Sodom, he throws in monotheism. Like, I, I swear to who? To the Lord, the Most High God, who possesses heaven and earth. The one God that's everywhere. you got to love Avram. Always Always a pedagogic opportunity. Always a chance to teach and to guide and to influence. 23. Neither, and what's the promise? What's he swearing about? Neither from a thread to a shoe strap, nor will I take from whatever is yours that you should not say, I have made Avram wealthy. I'm not going to take any spoils. You're telling me, just give me the souls, but you can keep the possessions. God, right? And this king says to Avram, take them for yourself. I don't, I don't need them. I don't want them. I don't want anyone to say that you were the one that gave me my, my, my riches. You made me wealthy. It's not from you. It's from, well, I mean, Pharaoh had given him before. So, I mean, it's not like he was averse to accepting gifts from foreign entities. So that, that itself could be asked as a question. Why did he accept the gifts from Pharaoh and reject the gifts from the king of Sodom. I don't, I don't have an easy answer for that. I have some thoughts in my head, but I don't know if I could tell you that it's authoritative. Could be Sodom was uh, a morally depraved, so morally depraved that he didn't want anything from there. That's number one. Number two, it could be that um, he had already gotten wealthy. He didn't want to get more wealthy from this guy. Could be they were going to be destroyed at some point, so he would be holding on to 
um, property that was meant to be destroyed in that destruction, even though it was before that story happened and before he even was told about it. I don't know. That I have a few theories in my head, but I'm sure the commentaries discuss it, which I don't have at, my, uh, at, at, at the ready right now. But either way, Avram says back to the king, thank you for the offer, but I promise I am not touching any of the stuff. With the exception, verse 24, exclusive, aside from what the lads ate and the share of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshkel, Mamre, they shall take their share. So he says, I don't need anything. I'm not holding on to any of your spoils of war. You, have, you can have it all. Um, with the exception of what my, uh, my folks, what my, what my fellow fighters ate while they were, you know, while they were fighting. And the share of the people who went with me. So let them, they'll take something, but nothing for me. No, thank you. All right. So that's the message that Avram gives back. That kind of uh, closes out the story of that war. Let's see. Let's see if Rashi um, adds on some interesting ideas here. Um, yeah, Rashi clarifies, neither from a thread to a shoe strap will I keep for myself of the captured possessions. Um, oh, and if you offer to give me from your royal treasuries, I'm still not going to take it because God is going to bless me. I don't need your stuff. Okay, take a look at this Rashi. This Rashi is very interesting, explaining who um, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre were. Who was Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre? Right? Avram says, I don't need anything except for the share that belongs to Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Who were they? So Rashi my servants who went with me, and additionally, Anur, Eshkel, and Mamre, although my servants entered the battle, as is, as is stated above, and he and his servants, and he smote them, while Anur and his companions stayed with the luggage to guard it. I'm going to explain that in a moment. Nevertheless, they shall take their share. And from him, David learned, as he, as he said, for as the share of him who goes down into battle, so is the share of him who stays with the luggage. They shall share alike. <laughs> All right. Um... Let me stop. I'm going to toggle Rashi off and explain what's going on over here. You know, when soldiers go into battle, the question is, who watches the home front? Yeah, you're with me on that. Now the home front is vulnerable. So now you have all your strong people that are into battle. So now there's vulnerability at home. Who's going to watch the luggage? The luggage, I mean luggage, like we know. Why, why do they have luggage? <laughs> who was packing luggage? That doesn't make sense. It means when you go into battle, you're leaving something behind, and now there's vulnerability, possessions and people, right? Women and children and other men who aren't fighting. I mean, there's a lot of... So the people who stay behind to guard the home front, right? Homeland security, if you will, right? I don't mean literally, but... So they also should get their reward, and this is where the source comes from in halacha. There's a halachic, there's a mitzvah. That when the soldiers go out to battle, and the soldiers, whatever compensation, whatever the soldiers get, those that are staying at home and also doing work, you know, guarding the home front, also need to get a share as well. And this we learn, we derive in halacha from the story of Avram who says, don't forget about Anar Eshkel Mamre, they also need to get hooked up with uh, some provisions. And King David did it in his time when the, when the soldiers went out to battle. And this becomes a moral and ethical provision. Yes, Donna. That's what happened in World War II here in the United States. Women were on the battlefront here, you know, making right. the armaments and things. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So the ticker tape parade, yeah, the parades all honor those that had gone overseas and come back. 
The truth is, there needed to be a parade. Maybe it also was a shared parade for those that had stayed and, 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 and kept this country going and kept things, you know, and, and, and held down the fort. That's also important. So it's interesting. It's like, if we, if we strip this from the immediate context, it just reminds us that every time we do something, there's always those that are supporting us, those that are backing us. And it's important to recognize and give due, due recognition to all the parts. So like, you know, if we want to speak about this spiritually, so let's talk about the context of a mitzvah. So for us to be able to do a mitzvah, yeah, it requires a lot of setup to get to that point of doing the mitzvah, right? It's like you do a mitzvah with a lulav and an esrik. You shake the, you shake the branches. Where'd it come from? Yeah, comes from the earth, comes from the ground, comes from afar, whatever it is. It, I don't mean like loose or growing from the ground, but hey, it come, it's, somebody has to watch it, somebody has to take care of it, somebody has to harvest it. All these things require input. Now that's before the fact. So this sounds like it's after the fact, but it's really during the fact. It, the point is that the experience itself has support. And Avram reminds us, don't just give glory to the experience but also to the support. And I feel like the support often in life gets disregarded and, and forgotten. In that example, Rabbi, so the growers of the Eshrach, are they, are they part of the final mitzvah? They're, they're facilitators of a mitzvah, whether they know or don't know about it in the case of an Eshrach. I'm sure they know why Eshrach. So they're facilitators. They do, they're facilitators. We call this in halacha, we call this in halacha heksher mitzvah. Heksher also means like a kosher thing. But heksher in this case means the preparation for a mitzvah. So for example, building the sukkah. Is it a mitzvah to build the sukkah? No. It's a mitzvah to eat in a sukkah on Sukkot. But how do you eat in a sukkah if you didn't build a sukkah? So, what, so what's building a sukkah? Is it a mitzvah or is it not a mitzvah? People will say it's a mitzvah because mitzvah can also mean good deed in, in our language. But is it a mitzvah? The Torah says you should dwell in a sukkah for seven days. It does not say thou shalt build a sukkah. It doesn't say that. But it gives instructions for how to build it. We know how it's supposed to look, and therefore you have to build it if you want to sit in it, if you want to dwell in it. But that is called a heksher mitzvah. It's, it's in order to set up, in order to get, to, to, to lay the ground, if you will, literally, to do this mitzvah, you need to build a sukkah. So, yeah, it's like making a shofar. There's a mitzvah to make a shofar. There's no mitzvah to make a shofar. There's the set to, to hear the sound of the shofar. But you can't hear the sound without a shofar, so someone's got to make it. So, heksha mitzvah. It's a preparation for mitzvah. So the point is that there's something special about that. Another example. Educating children. Educating children. Think about it. A child before their bar about mitzvah Right? I don't only mean the celebration, right? And let's, which once again, Maslow to Donna. Um, I don't mean the celebration. I mean the actual age of majority, the age in which one is now considered to be a competent adult and, and obligated to, uh, to be responsible for doing a mitzvah. Yeah, 12, 13, etc., around that age. So, so why, so what, when you teach a child, an eight year old child Torah, is it a mitzvah? They don't have a mitzvah to study Torah yet. 
because they're not of, they don't have any obligations. They don't have any, if a mitzvah is an obligation, there's no obligations uh, prior to Barabbat mitzvah. So is it a mitzvah? No, but it's a heksher mitzvah because you won't know how to wrap film, light Shabbat candles, say a blessing, kosher. You won't know how to do that stuff when you turn bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah if you didn't study beforehand. Does that make sense? So it turns out the study beforehand, the educa- the chinuch, the education, the early education, I don't only mean, you know, what we call today early education like preschool. I mean the pre bar bat mitzvah education is also part of that mitzvah. So heksher mitzvah, the preparation for a mitzvah, although one could relegate it to just the preparation, like the, you know, the, the, what needs to be done, it's very special also. Avram reminds us to not forget about the accessories to, to, the, to the mitzvah. I mean that in a positive way, right? That, that which enabled this to happen. The you, accomplice. The, accom- the accomplice. Don't forget the accomplice, right? Listen, in crime, they don't forget the accomplice. If you're the accomplice, that's it, you're sitting. You're sitting, right? You're part of the part of the crime, part of the uh, the criminal justice, um, uh, bringing bringing the criminal criminals to justice. You're an accomplice in a positive way, also. Who enabled them to go out to battle and be victorious and rescue Lot, etc.? And our um, what are their names? Um, Honor Eshkol Mamre. These people helped also. Okay. How is the spelling? Do you have a spelling for Heksher? Heksher H E. C-H-H-S-H-E-R. Hech-sher. H-E-C-H-S-H-E-R. Hech-sher. But if you Google Hech-sher, you will get guaranteed you're going to find kosher-related conversations. That's right. Uh, oh, yeah. does, this, um, does this bottle of uh, alcohol have a Hech-sher? Does it, actually? No, but it's on a list. Okay. I know it's kosher. Anyway, heksher would, uh, would also, because heksher means, um, literally kosher means fit or fitting, that which is appropriate, fitting. So fitting is kind of like preparation to make it fitting. It kind of all goes together thematically. At least in my head it works. Okay, let's jump back in to Genesis chapter 15. This is Parak Tez, Tezvav, chapter 15, verse number one. So after these incidents, which include a lot, lot of dramatic stuff happened here, right? So there's the abduction. There's Abraham comes to Abraham and Sarah and Lot come to the land of Canaan, and there's a famine, so they go down to Egypt, and she's abducted, but everything's fine, and they get rewarded, and then a war breaks out. Well, they separate Abraham and Lot, and then Lot is living in Sodom, and a war breaks out, and Lot is taken captive, and Avram goes in, and he's victorious. But after all of this, Rashi says, our sages tell us that Avram was concerned. He thought maybe his good luck had run dry. Maybe all of the spiritual good things that he's done in his life, maybe this was it. I mean, he has lucked out. His wife is fine, he has plenty of money, and he was just victorious in a military way with this thing. And he saved his nephew. A lot of miracles had happened to him. So he thought maybe his, he had expended his reward. So after these incidents, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision, saying, fear not, Avram. In other words, don't be afraid that now you're on your own. Don't worry. I am your shield. Your reward is exceedingly great. In other words, you have not tapped 
into, you have not depleted your reward, you still have plenty to draw from. What do you mean I took out all this stuff, all these blessings? And Don't worry, you got plenty of reward. Let's continue verse number two. And Avram said, O Lord, if that's the case, if I have a lot of reward, so he's thinking now about a legacy. O Lord God, he says, what will you give me? What kind of reward? Since I'm going childless and the steward of my household is Eliezer of Damascus. What? That guy is going to inherit me. Who's going to be the ne- who's going to be my next generation? Who's going to continue the legacy? You're telling me my reward is great. You've promised me the land of Israel. You've promised me a progeny. What progeny? I don't, I don't have any children. So what kind of reward? What are you going to give to me? The only guy I have is Eliezer of Damascus, who was a very special guy, but that's it. And Avram said, he continued to say, he just said something, but he continued to say, Behold, you've given me no seed, and behold, one of my household will inherit me. Right? Who, who, who am I going to pass the mantle? Who's gonna, who am I going to pass the torch to? Eliezer? My, uh, the guy, the, my right-hand man? Avram is clearly not happy about that being the option. And behold, that was what Avram said to God. God says, I got you, you're blessed, your reward is great, don't worry. And Avram says, what do you mean don't worry? Don't have a child. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, so God replies, this one, Eliezer, will not inherit you. But the one who will spring from your innards, he will inherit you. You're not going to be inherited by this guy, Eliezer. You will be inherited by a child, someone who comes from you. And God took Abram outside, Avram outside, and he said to him, Please look heavenward and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, God said to Avram, So will be your seed. This is the second reference to many children in this week's Torah portion. The first time was the dust of the earth. You remember that? The first time was dust. We had that a few days ago. And now it's the stars. Dust and stars. I explained the dust spiritually, that even though the dust, the earth itself, seems to be the lowest, everyone steps on it. No respect, as Romney Dangerfield would say, right? Get no respect. Everyone steps on me. The greatest treasures are from the earth. The earth is what supplies food for life. Life doesn't exist if the, if the ground doesn't, doesn't give, doesn't produce. So the same thing is true. The Jewish people may look sometimes down and out, downtrodden. Everyone steps on, on, on the Jew. Treasures inside and ultimately a light unto the nations. Now we have, that was before, that was a few days ago. Today we have this idea of looking at the stars. God once again promises Avram not only progeny, but a lot of progeny. Can you count the stars? That's going to be your children. But like I explained a few days ago, there's two ways to understand this. Quantitatively and qualitatively. Quantitatively means a a lot of children, a lot of descendants like the stars. Well, there's another way to understand this. Qualitatively. What is, the, what is the nature of a star? A star shines at night. Even when it's dark outside, sorry, 
precisely when it's dark outside, the star is shining. This is a message for every single one of us. And anyone who embraces the Abrahamic legacy and the message is, when it's dark outside, don't despair. When it's dark outside, don't fold. When it's dark outside, don't run away. When it's dark outside, don't quatch and complain. When it's dark outside, there's one job, shine. In a cold and dark world, we have one mission, and that is shine. Rabbi Zalman Posner, a blessed memory, was one of the first emissaries back in the day, 40s or 50s, no, 50s probably. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's got to be 40s because you'll hear this story. One of the first emissaries in the 1940s, he eventually became the rabbi in Nashville, Tennessee. Rabbi Posner in Nashville, Tennessee. He also did a lot of translation. He translated top parts of Tanya, the original translations. Anyway, Rabbi Zalman Posner tells a story, or told the story, that in the late 1940s, he was tasked to go on a, on a mission somewhere, right? As a shliach, an, an emissarial mission to spread Judaism. But he was afraid. He was, he was anxious. This is like, you know, going off uncharted territory and trying to open up a school or whatever it was. It was a very daunting task. It might have been when he first went to Nashville. It might have been somewhere where he went before he went to Nashville. I don't know. But the previous Rebbe, this is not our Rebbe, the previous Rebbe who passed away in 1950, the previous Rebbe said to him, and he had very difficult, a lot of difficulty speaking. It was very hard to understand him. My grandfather um, tells the story when he met with the previous Rebbe, how he had to get, how they, they had a meeting, and the previous Rebbe motioned him to come to him closer, and he got closer, and he motioned him closer, and he got closer. They were like face to face so that he could read his lips and hear what he was saying. It was very hard for the previous Rebbe. He, was not, he wasn't well physically. Very hard for him to speak and, and, and to understand what he was saying toward the end of his life. Anyway, back to the story. So the previous Rebbe told Rabbi Zalman Posner that the soul is sent from above, down, down, down into a cold and dark world for one purpose, to bring light and warmth into that space. Because the soul was doing fine above, by the way. The soul was missing nothing. It was lacking nothing. Why was the soul sent down below? Not for its own benefit, but rather to bring light and warmth into a cold and dark environment. So that's our job. And that's what God tells Avram. God tells Abraham, look outside and look at the stars. That's going to be the job of your descendants. You could understand this numbers-wise. Count the stars. Can you count them? Your, your, your progeny, your children will be, your, your descendants will be so many. Yeah, you could understand it like that also. But on, on a deeper level, a star brings light. Our job is to bring light into a dark world. Let's continue. Rabbi, excuse me. Yeah. I'm, are the non-Jews souls also sent down to, to be a light? Everybody's soul has a mission. A hundred percent. Everyone has a mission. Everyone has a unique mission. One thing Judaism does, and this is, in my opinion, to Judaism's uh, benefit, is it actually values every, everyone's job. See, many religions say you have to be this religion or else you're nothing. You're out. Judaism does not say that. Judaism says 
there's a Jewish mission, there are other missions. It's not exclusive. So you're, the, the answer to your question is yes, every soul is a mission. So we're small in number, but we're universal. Exactly. It's small and universal, and the dedication of the Jew can be an inspiration to others, as well as others can be an inspiration to us. It works both ways. All right, verse number six. And he believed, Avram believed in the Lord. Look at this. God promises him. He's over 75 years old, right? He's 75 when he left his, uh, his home. So this is already later. So he, he believed in the, in the Lord, that he was going to have a kid, etc. And he accounted, and God accounted it to him as, a, as righteousness. The fact that Avram believed, God said, I like this guy. I, like, I gave him a promise, and he believed it? I like it. God considered it to be a tzedakah. Tzaddik, tzedakah, righteousness. Let's continue reading number six. Remember, today we're doing five and six. Tomorrow, seven and haftorah, which is our addition for the new year. All right, number six. Genesis chapter 15. And God said to Avram, I am the Lord who brought you forth from Ur of the Chaldees. That's Ur Kastim. That's where he was thrown into the fire to give you this land to inherit it. As you notice, and as I'm going to say every single time, so you're forewarned, every single time there's a blessing of children, it comes along with a blessing of the land of Israel. Every single time. You will not find a blessing of children without a blessing for the land. The two are intertwined. The two are absolutely intertwined. And by the way, in a world that sometimes is not sure why Israel is a Jewish land, it's important to, know, to read the Bible. The Bible, the Torah, that is accepted by the other major religions as well as the source. It's important that we know what the Torah says. God promises Avram a dynasty, children, a legacy. He also promises him a land. I am the Lord who brought you forth from the world of Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. I took you out to give you this land. And Avram said, O Lord God, how will I know that I will inherit it? How do I know? And he said to him, God said to Avram, Take for me three heifers, three cows, and three goats, and three rams, nine animals, plus a turtle dove and a young bird, three, sorry, nine animals and two birds. And Abraham, Avram took for God all of these things, all of these animals, and he divided them in the middle. This was one of the ways that they would make a covenant back in the day. He divided them in the middle and he placed each part opposite its mate, but he did not divide the birds. Interesting little tidbit over there. He didn't divide the birds. There's a lot of discussion about that, but the animals he divided basically... He sacrificed the animals, he offered them, and then he cut them, split, divided the animals in half, put up one, on, one half on one side, one on the other. This was a way of sealing a covenant between two. Like, what's the, what's the message? The message is, it's one unit that's been divided into two. So as two people create a covenant, it's not two becoming one. It's really saying that we're each one half of one whole, and so that creates a tight connection in the covenant. So this, right now, what's happening is what we call the bris ben habasarim, or in English, the covenant of the parts. The covenant means the agreement of the parts, parts, right here, the parts of the animals that were divided into two sides, two halves. 
And the birds of prey descended upon the carcasses and Avram drove them away. Now the sun was ready to set and a deep sleep fell upon Avram. And behold, a fright, a great darkness was falling upon him. He had a vision, a very frightening vision did, ha- did Avram have at this covenant, at this epic moment where God and Avram were sealing the deal. Avram is, is God's and God's is Avram's. At that moment, a deep sleep and a deep fright fell upon him. And God said to Avram, you shall surely know that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. It's not always going to be good. I promise you, children. I promise you a legacy. I promise you progeny. But I didn't promise an easy life. They will be strangers in a strange land and they will enslave them. That foreign entity, that foreign nation will enslave them, your children, and oppress them for 400 years. This is a clear reference to the Egyptian exile. This is absolutely a reference to exile. It also foreshadows all of our struggles right throughout history, but this is a direct reference to the Egyptian exile that would conclude exactly 400 years from this conversation. From the moment that God tells Avram, your children will be enslaved for 400 years, it took 400 years. They weren't in Egypt for 400 years. They were there for 210 years. Where does the 400 number come from? 400 years from that communication. Let's continue. And also the nation that they will serve, those Egyptians, will I judge. I will judge them. In other words, I will punish them. They're not going to get off uh, scot-free, if that's the expression. And afterwards, they, your children, will go forth with great possessions. That's a reference to the fact that the Jewish people left with great, were going to leave with great wealth. By the way, parenthetically, at the, time, at the night of the Exodus, God tells Moses, hey, go and tell the people to clean out the wealth of Egypt. Because if not, Avram's going to tell me that you didn't tell the truth. You told me 400 years ago that they're going to leave with great possessions, with a lot of wealth. Make sure... The people take the great wealth so that my, uh, my promise will be fulfilled. But you, says God, you, Avram, will come to your forefathers in peace. You will not experience this exile that I'm referring to. You will not experience the slavery. This will be your children's destiny. This will not be yours. You will come to your forefathers. That means you will pass away in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. But the fourth generation, and the fourth generation will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites will not be complete until then. In other words, the fourth generation, it's it's more than four generations, but Avram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, right? So the descendants are going to be the ones that come back to this land. Your children will be enslaved in a foreign land, Egypt. But then afterwards, they're going to come back into this land, Israel. The fourth generation, fourth plus, will return. Why will it take so long? Why not give the land now? For the iniquity of the Amorites will not be complete until then. The nations that I'm going to kick out won't have done, will have only finally, you know, ticked me off enough that it'll be time to get rid of them and bring you in. So the, the, the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites will not have built up yet, is not yet built up by, in 400 years' time, be ready to drive them out and bring you guys in. That, this is it. This is the covenant of the parts. 
as we'll see soon in, in a few verses, what the, the actual pledge was. Now it came to pass that the sun had set. Remember, it was evening. The sun was setting. Now the sun had set and it was dark. And behold, the smoking furnace and a firebrand which passed between these parts. It was fire. There was smoke. There was a vision. Very, very, you know, complex um, experience. On that day, the Torah says, the Lord formed the covenant with Avram, saying, to your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt until the great river, the Euphrates River. I've, I'm going to give them this land, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Camonites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Rephaim, the Amrites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The land of ten nations. Typically we talk about the seven nations because ultimately the Jewish people only conquered seven of the nations. But originally... There were 10 nations that were discussing, that, that were in discussion. It says the final three will be conquered and settled when Mashiach comes. The final three. So until then, the land of Israel had, was comprised of the land of the seven nations. Three to be determined or waiting on those three. All right, let me stop here for a moment and check in and make sure everything makes sense. Does the story make sense? Yes. Yes? Yes. Okay. Beautiful. I it's sh- awesome learning with you. Okay. My, thank you. Thank you. I want to add, though, something that I feel is very important. And that is, this is very important. The Rebbe asked the question, how does it make sense at a time of the covenant, which is a time of love, understand what a covenant means. A covenant means I love you so much that I'm promising that forever we'll be connected. You only do that if you're feeling a connection. How does it make sense at the height of love that God is talking to Abram about exile, about slavery, about Egypt? Doesn't make sense. Imagine at a wedding. Yeah? What's a wedding? A wedding is, hopefully, two people standing under the chuppah who love each other. And what are they saying? It's not only we love each other today. We promise to love each other for all time. And we're going to make a commitment. That's what a wedding is, right? That's what a marriage is. That's what a wedding is. Imagine if at the wedding, everyone starts listing, you know, at some point in time, I'm going to totally disappoint you. Yeah, and you know I'm going to do something that really bugs you. And you know I'm going to do something. You call this a wedding ceremony? All the guests would be like, whoa, super uncomfortable as they're kind of talking about how they're all going to disappoint and, and really you know, devastate each other in their life together. That's a terrible thing to talk about. At the time of the covenantal marriage, I'm using this term somewhat loosely, between Avram and God, why is God talking about slavery? As we would say in Talmudic terminology, who's talking about slavery? Why are we mentioning it? Let's talk about the good things. I love you. It's like the Barney song. I love you, you love me, right? Should we love? Love is in the air, right? Split the animals. I know, that's a little weird. Okay, whatever. That's how they did it back then. Split the animals. Get the fire. Call it a day. Why this trepidation, this fear, 
the ground opens up, you know, underneath him, you know, so to speak. And like, devastate, your children will be, oh, devastatingly sub subjected to harshness in a foreign land, but eventually they'll get out. Why, why mention it? You can't tell, you can't, God, I'm speaking to God now, right? You can't tell that to Avram tomorrow, like the day after the wedding, the day after the covenant. Right now you have to do it. The Rebbe says something just absolutely mind-blowing. And it's predicated on like a mystical way of understanding challenge. And that is that sometimes the only way to get something amazing is when the opposite happens first. The opposite of something amazing happens first. The analogy that's given is a teacher and a student. Imagine a teacher loves his student or her student. Imagine a teacher loves the student. Communicating, teaching, educating, guiding. But imagine if in the middle of the lesson, the teacher suddenly has a brilliant new idea. They've never seen this in such a way before. It's like a brand new, like really cutting edge, brand new way of looking at this entire topic. The teacher is so excited, but the teacher has a choice. What's the choice? Does the teacher keep on teaching what they had already thought about, right? And then the nature of new ideas is if you don't focus on it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to just evaporate. It's going to disappear, right? It's just going to, it's like a lightning flash. Chachma, the power of innovation, creative thought, is likened to a lightning flash, right? Imagine you're, you're alone in Paris, right? It's dark. You've never been there before. It's dark, dark streets. You don't know where to go. Maybe there's no lights, whatever. Yeah, electric blackout, whatever. And then you have a flash of lightning in the sky. And for a moment, the entire environment brightens and you can see everything. And then it's gone. Chachma is a quick flash of insight. If you don't grab onto the inspiration, grab onto that, that flash, you're not going to have it. It's gone. It's gone. Finito. So the teacher now has a dilemma. Does he or she keep on teaching the old stuff? Or stop teaching, turn to the new insight, think about it, ponder it, develop it, figure it out, and then at a later point in time, teach that to the, to the student. So let's say the teacher loves the student so much that the teacher wants to give the student this new insight. So the teacher says, it's, it's better for me and for the student if I stop teaching. And how does the student feel? You were just teaching me. I felt closeness. I felt connected. And now you turned away. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. There's no communication. There's no sense of connection. There's no love. What's going on? You don't like me anymore? Stop teaching? We're done. We're over. It's finished. No more. That's it. Relationship done. I got to find a new teacher. The teacher can't even answer. Can't even tell the student, wait one second while I... Because that's going to... It's going to kill the inspiration. Sometimes the only way to get to something absolutely revolutionary is by doing something that appears to be painful first. 
So for the student that doesn't understand, doesn't see the bigger picture, the student feels that pain. We would call that exile, abandonment. The student feels abandoned. But is it abandonment? No. That entire experience that the student perceives as abandonment is the greatest expression of the teacher's love and connection. I'm willing to sacrifice my immediate connection with you to develop this new idea to share something more brilliant with you for your benefit. I hope that made sense what I just said. That's the true love of the teacher and the true connection. So it's read completely differently by both parties. The student reads this experience as abandonment. The teacher reads it as the ultimate connection, the ultimate demonstration of their love for the student. Perspectives. It's all about perspective. Different perspectives of the same reality. The Rebbe says this is exile. Exile is, galut, is God getting ready the, the, the brilliant light of redemption. While that's brewing, it feels like abandonment. God's turning to the new experience, getting that ready for us. In the meantime, we feel abandonment. I know what you're thinking. What, God can't pull it off quickly? I don't have an answer to that question. This is the analogy that the Rebbe gave. It's not my analogy. It's the analogy from the original um, uh, dis uh, discourse on this idea. So what's the point? Why is God mentioning exile when he's creating a covenant under the chuppah with Avram, so to speak? Because it's the greatest expression of love. Yes. As impossible as it, is, as it is for us to understand, as contrary to our perception, our perception as it is, God knows that this is what must happen while the blessing is being prepared, while redemption, the light of the redemption, the exodus is being prepared. So in the final analysis, is this tragedy or somehow something that is a blessing it's hard to say about someone else that your suffering was a blessing but each of us can perhaps um, relate to this in our own lives and recognize how sometimes what we defined as a disaster turned out to be a blessing not only did it lead to a blessing but the blessing could not have been born if not for that experience in that moment which means that the experience of the pain was really the birth pangs of the blessing. The pain that we felt was the blessing being birthed into existence. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. I would say often we don't see that. And now it's a matter of faith. But as to the question of why does God mention exile when he's loving, when he's all loving on Avram? Because the exile is, at least from a higher vantage point, not only a precipitator, but on some level, the ultimate expression of love. Very hard, very hard to say that, but that's the, that's the big idea here. All right, I hope that made sense. I, I don't know that I can explain it further. Yeah, Joy. Whoops. So like you were saying before, you might not see the stars, but they're there. Just because you don't see them. Right. And while God is expressing his love, He's saying you will go through, these things will happen, they'll be horrible, you will go through these things, but I, you may not see me, but I will still be there. Right, yes, good, I will be there, you'll get out of it, right, it's not going to be forever, it's a temporary thing, and it's actually being done on some level, it's hard to say this, for your own 
benefit, for our own benefit, right? That's the, that's the big idea. Good. Thank, it's a good analogy with the stars again. Donna, yeah. Well, one challenge is that though having been through those times, I mean, it's even though there might be somewhat of a greater benefit after, you still have experienced that and that trauma still resides. Yeah. So the question really is, getting back to the analogy of teacher and student, does the student, after they get, they go through it and get the new insight, the teacher got the new insight and then eventually teaches it, does the student say, oh, thank God, I'm so happy? Or are they still a little bit traumatized from the experience? I don't know. Trauma is a tricky thing. It's hard, to un- it's hard to undo a scar even if you know it made you stronger. I- I'm-, I'm 100% with you. I don't have an answer. I'm sharing a perspective. Um, I definitely don't have the answer. I think, I think it's a really good question. I, I would probably lean toward Team Scar. I would lean toward that still being... Because at the end of the day and the beginning of the day, we can't get outside of our perspective. What I mean is we have our perception. And I don't think we're magically... Uh, going to start seeing things from God's perspective. Even after it works out, there still may, may have been a little bit of... Uh, but the experience could have made us stronger. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. yeah. Makes it, Sure, the muscles get stronger when we uh, stress them. Still doesn't, feel, still doesn't feel good. Even if it's for, you know... Anyway, all right. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about that. Let's continue and close out the, the reading. One second. Why doesn't this work? Yeah, okay. Genesis chapter 16, you know what? Ooh, okay, we're gonna stop here. Tomorrow, because we're halfway through, tomorrow we're gonna pick it up, middle of the sixth reading, because here we have a brand new narrative. And I'll I'll set up the narrative, we'll do a little uh, cliffhanger, a little teaser, and then tomorrow we're actually gonna do it, and finish out the Torah portion, and study the Torah, so we got a big day tomorrow. But just the, the preview for tomorrow is, remember God just promised Abraham, God promised Avram a child, sure, but they're not having children. So Sarai, his wife, Avram's wife, says to her husband, be with my maidservant, Hagar, Hagar, and let's see if that produces a child, and it does, and that gives rise to all sorts of drama. So, if you want to find out more about that drama, join us tomorrow at Daily Power Parsha. Same bad time, same bad channel, as we explore the drama of Avram, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael, the child that is that will be born of that union. Okay, a lot, lot, uh, lot of ramifications of tomorrow's reading to this very day. Um, good. Questions, comments to close out? All good? Makes sense? Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure. One, so just to, to kind of summarize, we had a lot of different things, but one thing to take into this, into the day from what we studied today, um, is what the last point that we spoke about is seeing the light in the darkness, seeing the, the silver lining in the cloud, right? Not to get too cliche, but to be able to see that, you know, our perception is not always the only perception and that what makes us sometimes feel pain is actually making us feel is actually making us stronger it's a very powerful idea and of course um, from the first reading 
What did I want to mention? Oh, yeah, the idea of the stars. The idea of shining even when others aren't shining. Don't feel like you can't shine just because someone else is not shining. Um, we can't wait. This is individually. It's not a Jewish thing. This is individually. Every one of us as an individual. Don't wait for someone else. Don't wait for someone. If it's the right thing, do it. If it's a good cause, champion it. You know, just stand up for what's right, for what needs to be done. Make a difference in someone else's life. If you know of someone that needs something, help facilitate it. Don't wait for someone else to do it. We might be waiting for a long time if we wait for others. Be that star in someone's life. So I'll end with a story about starfish. I think it, I think it works. There was once a young boy who was walking along the beach, picking up starfish that had been beached and throwing them back into the ocean. When the old man, who's always at the beach every day, says to the kid, what are you doing? The kid says, throwing in the starfish. He says, why are you bothering? Do you see how many thousands of starfish there are? You think it makes a difference? The young boy picks up the next starfish and says to the old man, to this one, it makes all the difference in the world. And he throws that starfish back into the ocean. We may not be able to fix all the problems of all the people of the entire world. But one thing, one person, we can be a star in someone's life. Thank you for joining me today for Daily Power Parsha. See you tonight for Curious Tales of the Talmud, 8 p.m. Syndicated live on NBC. No, that was a joke. But live on Zoom, 8 p.m., the great Achnai Oven debate. You don't want to miss this. All right. See you later. See you yeah. soon. Take care. Okay. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Bye.